Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 8, the first 27 verses. Now when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. But go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose, and she served them. When the evening had come... They brought him to many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that, they, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave the command to depart to the other side. And then a, scribe, a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him, and they awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Before the Advent season, we were working our way through Matthew's gospel, and we're going to continue that now. And Jesus teaches from chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching the ways of God's kingdom. And now he's come down off the mountain. And there's a very notable shift from teaching the ways of God's kingdom to demonstrating the power of God's kingdom. He's now proving that he's who he's claiming to be. And he's being very clear about his mission and what he's called to do. And in this passage that we just read... Jesus demonstrates he's got power over the natural realm, power over the demonic spiritual realm. He's got power over death. 
And so this morning, I want us to just consider a few things from this passage that we can meditate on and find great hope and rest in. And I want us to consider the signs, consider the responses, and consider the implications. First, let's consider the signs. He's healing all kinds of people. He's, he's spending time with outcasts, and he's lavishing grace on the ostracized. And in contrast to what the religious leaders were up at that time in history, Jesus is basically pouring out mercy and grace on all the wrong people. And uh, my uh, homiletics prof, Brian Chapel, put it this way, the kingdom of God reaches past the physical barriers and the ethnic barriers and the social barriers in this passage here. You see that the, the leper has a, a physical barrier, the centurion has an ethnic barrier, and Peter's mother-in-law has a social barrier. But Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom of God uh, knows no bounds in terms of those that he'll reach with his grace. In, verses, uh, in verse 4, the leper uh, passage uh, unfolds, and this leper is definitely an outcast because of his spiritual condition. But he's healed, and he's told to uh, obey the law as per Moses Go to the priests, give them proof that you've been healed. This is all found in Leviticus chapter 14. So Jesus does this very intentionally because he wants the religious leaders to sit in the gravity that someone has come who is making the unclean clean. And he wants them to sit in the gravity that the one who's making the unclean clean is greater than the temple, greater than the priests, the greatest sacrifice, because Jesus is going around touching the unclean and not being defiled. You couldn't go into the temple if you were unclean because you would have made the temple unclean. You couldn't touch someone who was unclean. The, The rabbi couldn't do that because it would make them unclean. And the sacrifice had to be whole and perfect and it couldn't be blemished. It had to be clean. And so Jesus says, go according to Moses because everyone needs to sit in the reality that a new kingdom has come. That there is one who is making the unclean clean. And this is also, I think, a good reminder for us of why we as the church don't clean ourselves up to come to Christ. Not only are we saved by grace alone and we celebrate that, but as it relates to coming week in and week out to gather together as God's people to avail ourselves of his grace, of his word, of his spirit, of the sacraments, that we don't do that based on the kind of week that we've had. Oh, I had a great week where I was generous and caring and loving and and sacrificial and wise. I feel really good about myself. I'll come to church and worship. Oh, I had a terrible week. I was selfish and I was a bit of an ogre at the office or I yelled at my spouse or I kicked the dog or I was angry at my children or I cheated on my taxes or I looked at pornography or I was trying to medicate myself with the idol of consumerism and I just had those packages coming and hitting the front door every day to make me feel a little bit better, just get a little jolt of dopamine in the system because I got a new shiny toy or a thousand other things we could have done. Those are not reasons to stay away. Oh, this was a bad week. Not going to go to church. Not going to worship. See if I can clean myself up a little bit better. No, the leper reminds us we don't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We come to him in all of our glorious mess and he comes to us in all of his glorious grace and he is the one that makes the unclean clean. And there's the messianic secret here where, of course, he says, don't tell anybody, go straight to the priest. And whenever Jesus is not telling people to go and share things, this is like a sovereign mic drop because he has an agenda and he has a timing. And this is what he uh, 
has chosen uh, and aims to do, and he's not on anybody's agenda or anybody, el- anybody else's time frame. And so we call that the messianic secret, where he would say, don't tell anybody and go. And we know that lots of people did, uh, d- did the exact opposite and went and told everybody. But the point is, we have to realize that his ways are higher than our ways. When Jesus gives the messianic secret and says, don't go and tell anybody about this, he's recalling the implications of Isaiah 55, which says of the Lord, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Just as the, just as the heavens are far higher in, uh, than the earth, you can't conceive of what I'm up to. And Jesus is walking that out in a very powerful way because he knows that as humans, we have a tendency of making the sign the thing. And the sign is not the thing. My son Isaiah has a, a sign in his room at college And it says, it's one of those construction signs that says, danger, due to, and then one of his roommates pulled it off a fence someplace, and it says, Isaiah. And so he's got the sign that says, danger, due to Isaiah, in his room. And haha, it's hilarious. He's not the first college kid that's got some sign that should be out somewhere else pointing to something in the room. But if you've got a stop sign, or a one-way sign, or a traffic sign in your room, the sign is not actually the thing. The sign is supposed to be pointing to something else. And all of the healings that Jesus is doing, all of the signs that Jesus is doing, are not for us to get fixated on and then try and look at our lives and draw a straight line with a ruler from the miracles of the New Testament and go, how do I incorporate this and get this into my life? This is a, a small reading of the scripture. Uh, spoiler alert, I don't even mind spoiling it. Spoiler alert, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says... And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. In other words, this age is going to have an end. The age of brokenness and sickness and our bodies breaking down and getting diseases and the doctor saying, sorry, we don't have any answers. Like all of it. This age is coming to an end. And sometimes, and I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles anymore because he does. He does do miracles and he does do signs. However... I need to say, I know it sells a lot of books and packs out conferences, but God is not in the business of doing miracles every day and just defying the laws of nature every week. Like, this is not what he's up to. When we speak that way, and it makes people go, oh, that sounds great in my ears. God does miracles every day. Then they go and have a crisis of faith because they need a miracle, and everybody in their life and their family needs a miracle, and they don't see one every day. The signs are not the thing. The signs are pointing to the thing. And so we praise God when, when there are these indescribable, indescribable miracles and healings and things that he does. And it's right and good for us to come to him and pray, Oh God, would you, would you give me strength and health in my body? Why? Not just so that I can live a healthier life and go about my business, but so that I can give you glory, so that I can be your minister in this city, so that I can declare the gospel. The sign is not the thing. And if God heals you, praise him. And go and live to his glory. And if he doesn't heal you, praise him. The real question for the modern North American is, do I have enough faith not to be healed? Can I live with that kind of confidence and security and peace in my heart if I don't get the sign? Because the sign is not the thing. It's never been the thing. We move on to the centurion. This guy's an outcast because of his ethnic condition. And Jesus breaks this barrier. This guy's a leader in the pagan army. Rome has occupation. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house. Just breaking this massive barrier. I'll come to your house. He understands authority. 
He doesn't believe Jesus is just another good teacher. The centurion believes he's sent from God himself. Jesus says, I haven't even seen this faith here. He's marvels at it. If you note in verse 11, where Jesus says, you know, a day is going to come where people come from the east and the west. And Jesus is looking forward to this day when you've got Greeks and Romans coming to saving faith in Christ alone, coming from the east and the west. All of these people outside of the nation of Israel coming to faith in Christ alone. And he goes on to speak those, that word, the line of judgment that's coming to the people of God who've had the law of God, the scriptures of God for millennia, but they've turned and worshipped other gods. And so he's pointing forward to this, what Paul will pick up on it, the book of Romans, where, he's, where, where people start questioning God, like, did God just give up on Israel? And they're like, we look around at all the churches and the churches seem to be dominated by Greeks and Romans. Where are all the Jews? And so Paul has that chapter in chapter 9 where he talks about the elect and God's not failed the elect. And all of that election and predestination language is not meant for us to sort of shrink it down and kind of try and look around at all the people in our lives and go, who's elect and who's not? That's not the point of that. That's a massive statement about God not forgetting his people and having a promise towards his people. And the centurion is way outside that promise. But the kingdom of God is extended beyond that ethnic barrier uh, to even him. And then in verse 15, you've got the mother-in-law. And she's probably being kept at arm's length by all of the religious leaders in her life because of her social condition. At that point in human history, women were less than. And even with the, religion, with the religious leaders, they would not touch a woman. They would not speak to a woman. There were big problems here. There were big barriers that Jesus didn't respect. So Jesus goes to this woman and he physically touches her and heals her. This tenderness and this love and this care. So he's breaking ethnic barriers. He's breaking social barriers. He's breaking physical barriers. And if you zoom out and remember where we began, he's shifted from teaching the ways of the kingdom to demonstrating the powers of the kingdom. You see, the gospel is not good to great. The gospel is death to life. So all of the signs point that we are going from death to life in Jesus Christ if we trust in him and turn to him. Jesus' teaching reveals that God's children, that we are called to resemble his love. And at the end of his teaching, he says that the followers are called to perfection, right? Be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. We're like, whoa, who can do this? Well, then he shifts now and all of the signs are restoring things to perfection. He's the one that brings the perfection. The teaching of Jesus declared that being re- reconciled to God required a life of holiness, which is wholeness. And now he's healing people, and he's the one by his power and him alone who's bringing the wholeness. So he's taught the ways of the kingdom, and now he's demonstrating the power of the kingdom, that in the end of the day, he's announcing he's the one who will bring it. He is the one who will accomplish it. Let's move on from considering... Um, these signs to considering the responses and there's three responses in between the verses 18 to 23 the first response teacher i'll follow you this i see it as it's i like the idea of jesus the second response is i'll add jesus and the third response is i need jesus If you look at the first one, I like the idea of Jesus, verse 18. Teacher, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And Jesus' response to that is not, love you too, man. This is amazing. Thank you so much. No, his response is, I don't think, you like the idea of me. But, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But this is not going to be a comfortable life. 
And that doesn't mean that, hey, you worship Jesus and you become a follower of Jesus Christ and God just starts throwing arbitrary hardness into our lives. That's not it. There's not a human being in this city that doesn't have a hard life. I don't care what their Instagram feed shows. That's their highlight reel. There's not, a, there's not a human being in this city that doesn't have sorrows and pains and difficulties. And so this guy likes the idea of Jesus, but he doesn't, he's not going to follow Jesus. And Jesus' response is, there's going to be seasons where you're afflicted. There's going to be seasons where you're ostracized, where you're persecuted. Right? You're not being invited into a life of comfort. You might like the idea of me, but that's different than loving me and following me. I like the idea of Jesus. I like his teachings. He seems pretty cool. He's like an ancient hipster just fighting for the underdog. I like that. No, that's different than loving Jesus and following him. After the idea of Jesus is, I'll add Jesus, verse 21. Hey, let me bury my father. And as moderns, we read it like, ooh, wow, this is harsh. Jesus is like, let the dead bury their own dead. And we're like, whoa. Um, insensitive much, Jesus? Well, that's a phrase, let me bury my father. It's a phrase that everybody would use. As a, it was a phrase, an idiom that meant, I have an elderly parent, and so I'm, I'm staying close to home, because when they die, I'm going to bury them, and I've got to take care of business and all the affairs, and there's, a, there's a months of mourning in the culture. So his father's not actually dead. What he's saying is, I'll follow you. I've got all this stuff going on, so I'll add Jesus to my life. I'll add you to my life. Oh, I'd love to follow you, but I can't because I got, I got a lot going on. Have you ever used family to get out of things that you didn't want to do? Of course you have. Right? Those of you with children, your children are like social human shields. Oh, I'd love to, but the kids. The kids. Susan and I have raised three children, so we get it. You know, you're not an anomaly. These children are work. Uh, yeah. Put in the work. 20 years later, you can relax when they move out. Come on, Nigel, you can make it. <laughs> Two more years, son. I know you got it in you. Move on. No, I'm just kidding. I love my boy. But the thing is, you, 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 use, you can use relationships as an excuse. I got to get home. We got to put the kids to bed, so I don't know if we can make it. You could, though. This guy's like, ah, I got an elderly parent. Might live for another year. I'd follow you, Jesus. You see what's going on here? It's not. It's not. It's not as harsh. It's Jesus is seeing through the motivations, and he's like, "I'm not going to be added to your life. You don't like the idea of me. You don't add me. It's provocative." And then, so then, the, the, the third response, the response, the call for you and I is not, "I like Jesus, and I'll add Jesus. I'll follow Jesus." The disciples followed. Verse twenty-three. His disciples followed him into the boat. I want you close. I love you. I, I, I give my life to you. It's th- this is the need, the desire for Jesus. Right? And so just like the leper, you and I are called to give a testimony of the one who's cleansed our guilt and our shame, given us a sense of identity, quieted the storm in our souls. Right? That this life is not all that there is. That the resurrection means this age is ending. Another age is to come. We will cling to him. It will, it will reform and renew the way in which we engage in vocation in the city from the belief that this life is not all there is. We're free to be generous and loving and wise and give our lives away, be bold in our various vocations um, to be his ministers. And so, speaking of the storms, let's move on and consider the implications. Because 
After the healings, the scene changes and we're taken to the sea. And there's the big storm. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's 209 meters below sea level. And then north of Galilee is Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in all of Syria. It's 2,800 meters above sea level. So you've got cold air coming off the mountains, hitting the warm air on the sea. Massive squalls. Just huge storms that would come up. Now, the experienced sailors knew this and... And navigated this and did it all the time and regularly. And the disciples were experienced sailors. But this storm is so horrendous. It came up so violently, so quickly, they, they think they're going to die. It's not the first time in a boat, but they think they're going to die. Verse 24, Matthew uses the term seismos to describe the storm, which is a Greek term, seismos, which is the Greek term for earthquake. And the ancients, uh, in the ancient world, the ancients believed that... Uh, the sea was this place of uncontrollable spiritual upheaval. They're always adding sort of spiritual meaning to these storms. And so why does Matthew use this choice of words in telling us the story? It's significant because there's a takeaway he wants us to get. From a first century point of view, if the storm strikes with a warning from nowhere and the waves are crashing over your boat, what's going on is... From the ancient's kind of viewpoint is the powers of darkness are flexing and they're raging and they're intimidating. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. So the takeaway here is that Jesus is just sleeping through this demonic tantrum. And in verse 26, he says, why are you fearful? Oh, you have little faith. And then he rebukes the winds and the sea and there's this great calm. And it's tempting at this point in the, in, in the, in the record to talk about storms and then the sermon takes a right-hand turn and we talk about all the storms in our lives. Do you have storms in your life? Let's talk about Jesus and how he calms the storms in our life. That is good, helpful application. But before we do that, I don't think you want to just jump ahead to what do I think this means for me. I think we need to sit in the gravity of what the text actually means. And what the text is asking us to consider is the disciples' response. What sort of a man is this? And it provokes us to sit in something much, much greater. Because when we look closely at what happened when Jesus wakes up, uh, it's, it's pretty staggering. Because this isn't recorded like poetry. For those of you who are exploring Christian faith or you're new to the Bible, there are books that are full of poetry. The book of Revelation is all poetry. So everything that God is doing, everything that Jesus did on earth and in, in God's uh, mind and the plan of redemption, the book of Revelation, the unveiling is like lifting, lifting the, the, the curtain and watching the life and the ministry of Jesus in the spiritual realm. It's all poetry. But the Gospels are not poetry. That's not the genre. They're just historical records. They're not written in poetic ways. right? So that's why it's just written in a matter-of-fact way. Because this is a fisherman remembering something. You know, in contrast to, say, Hesiod's Theogony, the origins of the gods, whenever Zeus was doing something, it was always recorded like the third act of an X-Men movie where there's beams going into the sky. If you read uh, Hesiod's Theogony, line 662, you find phrases uh, like this where Zeus is fighting the Titans. Lightning bolts thick and fast, trailing indescribable supernatural flames, rising into the divine sky with such a sparkling flare that they dazzle the strongest eyes. So that's how it's described when Zeus is doing stuff. Here's how the Gospels describe Jesus calming a a hurricane. He rebuked the sea. He said to the sea. He spoke to the sea. 
It's not poetic. It's just matter of fact. The, uh, Mark's gospel records Jesus' words as just saying, peace, be still. That's it. That's not how you write poetry. That's how a fisherman recounts history. Jesus woke up and he shushed a hurricane. There's no lightning bolts that can fast. There's not all of this stuff. This is Jesus Christ, the king of creation. He has power over creation. And he's telling the raging sea to be quiet like a toddler that's having a tantrum. He says, okay, that's enough. You know, the word rebuked in the Greek is to give a warning. It's epitomeo, just giving a warning. And the, the tone of the Greek, if you look at Matthew and you mark and you put it together and go, what's the tone of this? Did Jesus stand up on the sea? Did Jesus stand up on the bow and scream into the storm? And like, was this a very cinematic situation? But the tone in the Greek language is it's not. It's actually a very calm situation. The, the, the phrases that he's using, it's like a parent saying to a toddler who's freaking out. Okay, shh, 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 shh. Okay, that's enough. Peace, be still. That this is what he did. And the reason why I'm taking the time to sort of unpack that is because what happens is when he goes, okay, that's enough. The raging storm stops. If you if the sea is churned up, those waves are gonna go for a while. This is just you know physics. They they don't just go and just kind of calm down. So this is actually a terrifying moment when Jesus causes the Shushes the hurricane and everything stops and everything is very calm. It's like the Truman Show if somebody just shut off the water. Okay, we're done now. What is happening here? You know, there was somebody else who spoke and stopped the chaos of the waters, bringing order to the chaos. And this happened at creation. It was God. Of course, Jesus Christ being God, part of the Trinity, the stormy waters, the book of Genesis recording the spirit of uh, of God hovering over the face of those stormy waters. How long were, were those waters storming before God said, let there be light? The point is, God speaks. Jesus says to them, why are you so fearful? And again, it's not, you know, your, your faith was a level three. I actually needed it at a level five. It was actually at a level zero because I know that he says little faith, but again, I'm going back to the original language. The, he doesn't say fearful as in phobos, as in like phobic fear. He says fear is in dilos, which means to lose all your confidence. So Jesus is saying, you guys have watched me heal people and cast out demons um, and, and reverse the laws of nature. Why have you lost all of, why are you not gripping to me? And in the storm, we all grip to something. And we need to be, ought to be gripping to something that is unshakable. So this is all very encouraging, of course, because they don't deserve uh, Christ's grace, and, but they get it. And this is encouraging for us because whether you're strong in faith or you're weak in faith or you're mature in faith or you're immature in faith, we're all getting the same strong Christ. And he does allow those he loves to go through storms. And he's with us in our storms and he loves us through our storms. And in the end, the, the scriptures teach us he will calm every storm. So it is appropriate to think about the storms in our life. Psalm 107, he can still the waves when his people cry in distress. But I think you and I ought to relate the way the disciples did and ask ourselves, what are we really gripping to? Like when the anxiety and the fear goes to level nine, like where are we turning and where are we running? And is, is it all of the, is it all of the, uh, the, the steps of, you know, sort of garnering a sense of peace and quiet, and then Jesus is like way down the line. Okay, now I'm feeling a little bit better, and I've thoroughly handled this situation by all the physical means I know necessary. Now I'm going to pray. 
Jesus is saying, why have you lost all confidence in me? Cling to me, grip to me, turn to me, run to me. I'm here for you and I love you. And of course, in, verse, in, in the book of Revelation, if you go back to the poetry, there's a, there's a phrase in, the, in Revelation 21 that says that in the end there is no more sea. Well, it doesn't mean that in the resurrection and as God restores this earth and restores our body and raises from death, there's no more water, no more sea. There's no more raging chaos. It's the end of chaos. It's the end of injustice. It's the end of sorrow. It's the end of demonic uh, forces churning out problems in the world. It's the end of all of it. And you'd think that at the end of all this, the disciples would be relieved. That the text would say, oh, they, they were relieved. But they didn't go from being afraid to being relieved. They went from being fearful to being in shock and awe. Mark records that as they went from being afraid to being exceedingly afraid. In other words, they had to rethink reality. This was, this was mind, absolutely mind-boggling for them. They had to rethink reality because it wasn't the sea that was untamable. And unstoppable is Jesus who's untamable. Jesus who's unstoppable. And if the wind and the sea relate to Jesus with reverence, then you would think it would stand to reason that all of humanity, we would relate to him with reverence and bend our knee to him and worship him. But of course we don't. Because sin has been our nemesis ever since the Genesis. And so the human condition is such that we don't want an untamable God. We want... A very tameable God. Don't give me an untamable God who might contradict the things that I want or desire or, 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 or desire, desire that I give my time away or my resources away. Don't give me an untamable God. Give me a, a small, tameable version of God. Right? Go ahead and preach. Uh, teach the Bible. Just don't read anything that might conflict with what I think or believe or want. I need a small, tameable God that agrees with my views. I need a small, tameable God who's kind of impotent and convenient. This is the God that we want. But the, the God that shows up on the storm in Galilee is untamable. But the good news of the gospel is he's not just a king of untamable power. Showing up like a Zeus and commanding you and I to cower in fear before him. He doesn't want subjects. He wants children. So he's not merely a king of untamable power. He's a king of untamable love. The disciples were afraid they'd die under the waves of the sea. Well, Jesus came and he died under the waves of our sin on the cross. And on the cross, there was a great storm. The sky turned dark and purple like a bruise. Like the heart of God was wounded. And on the cross, Jesus took our place in the ultimate storm. He took all of the judgment for our sins so that we would only ever know God's mercy. He was abandoned in the storm on the cross so that you and I would never be abandoned in our storms. And because of his life and his death and his divine resurrection, this king who came in untamable love, he will return again in untamable power. And when he does, he is going to end every storm. He'll destroy darkness itself. But in the end... Everything that is sorrowful will be eradicated. Everything that is beautiful will be restored. And death itself is going to have a funeral. And so before that day, from this day to that day, may you and I live to the glory of the one who saved us as grace. May we trust him and turn to him. May our response not be, I like the idea of Jesus. I'll add Jesus. May it be that we will follow Jesus, love Jesus, turn to Jesus, desire to emulate Jesus. 
May we do this with confidence because our very lives are in the loving hands of the God who shushed the hurricane. Let's pray.